broadcasting on the Drug Truth Network. This is Cultural Baggage. It's not only inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American. My name is Dean Becker. I don't condone or encourage the use of any drugs, legal or illegal. I report the unvarnished truth about the pharmaceutical, banking, prison, and judicial nightmare that feeds on eternal drug war. This is the Drug Truth Network. My name is Dean Becker, and you are listening to the Cultural Baggage Radio Program. Gary Bernson was the point man, the CI key field commander in Afghanistan that made possible the attack, the attack on bin Laden and al-Qaeda. And he's written a great new book, and we're going to be talking about it uh, from Crown Publishing. The name of the book is Jawbreaker. And uh, let's welcome to our show Mr. Gary Bernson. Pleasure to be with you tonight. Uh, thank you, Mr. Bernson, for uh, taking the time on a uh, on, uh, this evening to do that. Um, if you would, sir, begin by uh, giving us a summary of your career in the CIA. Uh, I spent 23 years in the clandestine service of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, the vast majority of that uh, service would be in the Middle East and South Asia. Uh, and um, I also spent a time in, in, in Latin America. During the course of the, that, that career... I would serve as a chief of station on three different occasions and then would wind up leading many of CIA's most important counterterrorism uh, deployments, whether they be after the attacks on embassies or in response to 9-11 in Afghanistan. Well, Gary, uh, Chapter 13 of your book begins with this uh, quote I'm going to read here from George Orwell. We sleep safe in our beds at night because rough men stand ready in the night to visit violence on those who would do us harm. And uh, in it, best that I'm aware, Osama bin Laden was responsible for the horrors of 9-11. And I'm just glad that, if you'll excuse me, the rough men like yourself are willing to do what it takes to uh, destroy those type people. Well, you know, we were very fortunate in the sense that there were a lot of uh, very good people in America that were ready to respond and did did participate in uh, Operation Enduring Freedom, both uh, from the uh, Central Intelligence Agency and from uh, the U.S. Special Operations Forces uh, community. Now, you had uh, gone into Afghanistan uh, some time before 9-11, is that correct? Correct. Uh, Fourteen months before 11 September, I and... Um, Five other men uh, were on a, uh, a mission inside of Afghanistan. We're working with Ahmed Shah Massoud and his men. Massoud was the man assassinated two days before uh, 9-11 as part of the Taliban's efforts to eliminate him and any threat from him. Uh, but we were there on the ground, on the front lines with them, on the Shomali Plains, conducting operations with them and attempting to capture or, well, actually uh, attempting to snatch uh, a key uh, al-Qaeda operative there. Uh, unfortunately, that mission was uh, was called off before we were able to execute it, and uh, we would, would wind up withdrawing from Afghanistan. Uh, that was the last time where CIA actually had men on the ground in Afghanistan uh, trying to uh, conduct a significant operation against al-Qaeda before 11 September. Yes, sir. Now, you and this, and it was a relatively small band, even uh, when after 9-11, that... that uh put forward this effort to uh, bring down the Taliban to try to capture Osama, but you were severely uh, restricted in the number of men, number of boots on the ground, I think you said, that uh, were able to uh, accomplish this goal. I mean, you, you made great strides, but uh, uh, you, you feel some regret that you were not given those boots to uh, 
uh, capture Mr. Uh, bin Laden? Yeah, well, you know, of course, during the the war, during Operation Enduring Freedom, you know, there was roughly 100 CIA officers and 350 special forces troops that worked together on multiple battlefields around the country, and that formula worked very, very well with CIA special forces and those people affiliated with the Northern Alliance to get the Taliban to surrender and to defeat them on multiple battlefields. When it came to that final battlefield in um, um, you know, Tora Bora, uh, the U.S. military, uh, you know, we we had made requests to uh, introduce. I had made the personal request to introduce 600 to 800 Rangers there, believing that they were needed to to uh, destroy Bin Laden and uh, those individuals with him. Unfortunately, they you know were not provided. The uh, the Rangers did not come. We were given Delta Force, and and Delta Force officers that were there were superb and conducted an incredible operation. But unfortunately, there just weren't enough of the CIA and Delta Force together to close off uh, all the avenues of escape. I've heard it said by many that, in essence, uh, we, we uh, perpetrated this war. We, we put this war together on the cheap, if I dare say that, that uh, we, we didn't want to have those American casualties, and uh, we depended on the Northern Taliban, or on the Taliban, or excuse me, the warlords. The Northern Alliance. The Northern Alliance, to, to do most of the grunt work, so to speak. And yet, uh, I noticed many times in your book that their allegiance could be bought uh, for, uh, you know, dollars. And uh, it almost seems that we should have just driven in there with a, a semi-truck full of $100 bills and, and actually done it even cheaper. Well, you know, the thing is this, is that... that the decision to execute the war the way it was done, I thought, was superb in the sense that of defeating the Taliban with the number of troops that we did, the way it was executed was genius. It was a masterpiece, but it was a flawed masterpiece because in that final phase in, in Tora Bora, in Nangahar province, when we needed to make the adjustment of you know, light numbers of CIA and special forces and gone to a larger American commitment, we were unable to convince, you know, convince those, those of us on the, on the ground there, and particularly me, that believed that we needed to shift gears to a different sort of formula. I failed to convince people that this was the way to go, and, and they stayed with the old model, or the model that had worked in those other cities. And this, unfortunately, allowed bin Laden to get out, get into Pakistan, and, and we're in the situation we're in now because of that. Now, in your book, uh, you did make reference to some findings of, I believe it was the church committee, that showed uh, some individuals was the term renegade CIA agents that were involving themselves in uh, drug smuggling on behalf of U.S. interests. I, I, uh, I've read numerous reports, some heavily validated, some not, that indicate agents or proxies of the CIA and other U.S. government agents were involved in the drug trade supporting one nation's uh, warring faction over another. The stories of the heroin smuggled out of Southeast Asia back during the Vietnam era the swapping of cocaine for weapons in the Iran uh, Contra situation. And then, of course, there's today's ongoing problem with 95% of the world's supply of opium and heroin now coming from Afghanistan. Now, perhaps you don't want to comment about the current Afghan situation. I understand. No, no. What, what, what I would comment on is this. If there's been cases where there, and, and I referenced the fact that the Pike and church committees reduced CIA's covert action authorities abroad because of there were times where people did make mistakes and, and things occurred that shouldn't have happened. That is very, very rare. 
the vast majority of CIA officers understand their responsibilities in FI collection, what we call foreign intelligence collection and covert action, and there aren't violations of the law. People understand the law. People that enter the CIA join the CIA to defend America. So, you know, uh, on balance, I think that we've, we, we are a force for good in the world. Now, as you look at what's happened in Iraq, or excuse me, Afghanistan right now, with the, the, the excessive growth in, uh, in cocaine, excuse me, opium, this is not because of the CIA or because of the U.S. This is because the situation there is is horrific economically, that Afghanistan needs aid from the entire world, not just the United States. The Bush administration has correctly internationalized the issue. We've got NATO there. We've got about 30 other countries in there helping us. And it's going to require a national effort to get Afghanistan. It's going to require a mini Marshall Plan from the world to get Afghanistan back on its feet. It's going to take a long time. Look, recently they hired a you know, new police force there, and almost 80% of the, the people in the police are illiterate in their own language. When you have illiteracy like that, it's hard to build democracy. You know? Democracy, the sort of things that you know, we, we love and cherish in America, you know, are possible because you have an educated uh, populace. They don't have that in Afghanistan. They have warlords. They have tribalism. They have all these problems. It is a very, very tough fight there. And a lot of people, whether they're in you know, United States Agency for Interdevelopment or you know, Agency for International Development or other nonprofits and the military, a lot of people are making a lot of efforts in Afghanistan. Unfortunately, we've had a serious setback, as you've noticed, uh, you know, on the 6,000 tons of uh, opium created this year there. Yes, sir. Uh, I was told by one of my reporters that there's some 3 million Afghanis now make their living growing opium. So. You're correct. 3 million people are involved in the opium trade there. And you'd think, you would think that we have, you know, 40,000, you know, people out there, you know, whether they're uh, U.S. And troops and NATO troops and people doing economic development, that they would have done a better job this year of identifying and cutting back on that. But I think what's happened is, is everyone has turned their eyes to the growing insurgency and without focusing properly or supporting the drug enforcement agency's activities uh, sufficiently. And this thing has, this thing actually fuels the Taliban's efforts, because the Taliban doesn't get money anymore from the Saudis or the Emiris. They get the money from the, the opium. So this is going to require, you know, additional attention, and it, it only makes for greater complications for the U.S., which is now fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. We have a two-front war. Well, uh, Gary, I am a uh, uh, member of law enforcement against prohibition, former police officer. We're a group of about 5,000 individuals who feel the drug war is a complete and absolute failure. Uh, the, the president and other U.S. officials have said that those who use drugs are empowering the terrorists. But isn't it really the U.S. policy of eternal drug prohibition that makes it possible for these violent, evil people to turn flowers into gold? But, you know, I, I, I have to say to you, though, if we did not control the the drug trade or try to fight it back the number that the health problems we would have and then the explosion in the number of addicts around the world would would cause us so many other social problems and i agree with you that that this is really swimming upstream fighting the drug problem but i don't blame that on the u.s government i don't blame that on societies um but the fact is is if we did not combat uh, or try as best we could to reduce 
the production of opium and heroin and its distribution around the world, and the same thing for cocaine and crack cocaine, and the, and the serious addictive quantities of some of these drugs, that we'd have a health crisis in the world that would be um, that would be very very terrible. I do share your concern, though, with, you know, this, with 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 how difficult this is, but I think that the health consequences of not doing it uh, make it imperative that we do. Well, perhaps we'll just uh, agree to disagree on that one, perhaps another show. Uh, I, I would advise you, if you get the chance, to share this website with uh, your friends. It is leap.cc. We have the former Attorney General of Columbia, the former head of the uh, Drugs Division at Scotland Yard amongst our members. And uh, it's not a bunch of uh, ponytailed friends wearing uh, hippies. No, 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 no. I don't and I, I don't believe that, 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 that... I think that there are individuals here. There's a... You know, there's an argument for certain things to decriminalize certain types of of uh, of, of drugs, but you know, when you look at the addictive quantities of of things like crack cocaine, you look at crank. You know, you look at the uh, the methamphetamines. What they're doing um, to leave that unencumbered would just be, um, um, you know, to let that continue to proliferate. Would, would cause us terrible, terrible problems, I believe. And, and so, um, you know, uh, this is, this is a tough thing to deal with. And, 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 and your side in that argument has, you know, it makes some valid points. Good. I'm just concerned about the long-term health, uh, health issues in America. Well, again, another show, perhaps. I, right. uh, I, we, again, we are speaking with Mr. Gary Bernson, uh, the uh, CIA officer who led the attack on bin Laden and al-Qaeda. has a great new book, Jawbreaker, and I highly recommend it. It's very comprehensive. Uh, I learned uh, many things that I had heard parts of and uh i was very concerned about that situation where one uh uh warring faction had captured another side and kept them in trailers many of them asphyxiated uh, some were shot through the trailer i understand but it was not the cia's fault you guys just didn't have the boots on the ground to monitor what was going on right you know afghanistan's the size of like texas and california put together you know this is a big area there were a hundred officers in this entire area the Afghans have a history of conducting horrific human rights uh, violations on one another. And what you're talking about, of course, is what happened with uh, Dostom's uh, killing of so many of, the, of his enemies, the Taliban, up in Mazar-e-Sharif. And a lot of that was in revenge for the fact that the Taliban had done the same thing to his people four years earlier. You know, and, and Americans tried wherever possible to make sure that individuals, you know, the human rights were respected, people weren't summarily executed, that we, we tried to organize that. But as you stated, with only 450 people, you know, on the ground, with small numbers of individuals on battlefields all around a country in raging violence, it was very, very difficult for us. And, 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 and I appreciate you making that point, that, uh, that no American, you know, participated in that or, or agreed to it, uh, and had we seen it, we would have stopped it but of course they're not going to do it where the americans are or where our eyes are well all right uh, gary i i want to uh extend an offer to bring you back perhaps we can kick around that uh, thought of prohibition and please visit that website is uh, uh, any uh, quick closing thoughts we are just out of time it's been a pleasure well, Gary, Gary Bernson, thank you so much. His book, Jawbreaker, uh, folks, give it a read. I, it'll educate you on a lot of what happened in Afghanistan. Poppygate, bizarre news about the U.S. policy on controlling heroin, featuring Glenn Greenway. 
In 2001, Afghanistan's ruling Taliban initiated a prohibition against opium poppy cultivation. The ban was particularly effective, limiting cultivation to under 20,000 acres. Currently, Afghanistan has more than 400,000 acres under poppy cultivation, a 20-fold increase since the U.S. invasion and subsequent collapse of Taliban prohibition. This year, Afghanistan's harvest potentially yielded 670 tons of pure heroin, enough heroin to vastly oversupply world demand, indeed producing a heroin surplus of 30%. In the last year alone, one million more Afghanis have become involved with opium poppy cultivation. Three million Afghanis now grow poppies, one-seventh of the population, and the illegal trade is responsible for more than half of Afghanistan's GDP. Despite Great Britain's injection of $85 million U.S. to destroy Afghanistan's illegal trade, only 35 low-level smugglers have been prosecuted in the last year by Afghanistan's new counter-narcotics task force. The Office of National Drug Control Policy reports that heroin population in the U.S. is continuing to increase. Purity of powder heroin is now generally greater than 50% and at $5 a bag, a cited Baltimore ethnographer says the price, quote, can't drop any lower, end quote. This is Glenn Greenway reporting for the Drug Truth Network. Terry Nelson spent 32 years working for the U.S. government as a customs border and air interdiction officer. He retired last year as a GS-14, the equivalent of a bird colonel. And this is Terry Nelson speaking for law enforcement against prohibition. Prison remain incubators for terrorism. Drug cartels and terrorist organizations are two of the most dangerous foes facing the world today. American prisons provide the ideal atmosphere to nurture the goals of our enemies by converting desperate inmates. Long considered recruiting station for violent gangs, U.S. prisons have become a dangerous breeding ground for radical Islamic terrorists and authorities claim they don't have the resources to prevent the serious problem. A new report to be released this week by Homeland Security Policy Institute at George Washington University concludes that U.S. officials are aware of the problem but are too cash-strapped do anything about it. This allows Islamist extremists to target vulnerable prison inmates with Muslim readings which promote hate and violence, creating the sort of homegrown terrorism currently plaguing other countries. The Federal Bureau of Prison estimates that there are 2 million people in prison in the United States, and around 6% of them are Muslim. There have been many high-profile cases of terrorists who became radicalized during incarceration, including British shoe bomber Richard Reed, now serving time in the United Kingdom prison. Others include Chicago gangbanger Jose Padilla, the dirty bomber who converted to Islam on serving time in South Florida prisons. Radical Wahhabi Islam who plotted shooting rampages against three National Guard facilities, several synagogues, and the Israeli consulate converted in Northern California's Folsom prison. An FBI informant who converted to Islam while serving time in a California juvenile detention center and later trained with the terrorists who kidnapped and beheaded an American newspaper reporter. None of this is news to U.S. officials or lawmakers. After all, more than a year ago, FBI Director Robert Mueller testified before Congress that prisons continue to be fertile ground for extremists to exploit both a prisoner's conversion to Islam while still in prison 
as well as their socioeconomic status and placement in the community of vulnerable relief. Considering the overrepresentation of nonviolent drug offenders who have been remanded to prison and the probable link to murders being committed to further the drug trade and the above link to terrorists, isn't it about time that the United States stop trying to legislate the behavior of its citizens and instead focus on our true enemies? Drugs are too dangerous to be left in the hands of terrorists and criminals. The criminal gangs and terrorists must be removed from the distribution chain, and then the associated violence will also stop. This is Terry Nelson on behalf of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, at www.leap.cc, signing off. Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. These men and women have served in the trenches of the drug war as prosecutors, judges, cops, guards, and wardens. They have seen firsthand the utter futility of our policy and now work together to end drug prohibition. Please visit leap.cc. It's time to play Name That Drug by its side effects. Reyes syndrome, destructive effects on the heart and blood flow in newborn infants, severe constipation, diabetes, dysentery, hemophilia, kidney disease, gout, upset stomach, and ulcers. Time's up. The answer from the manufacturer. Pepto-Bismol. Your heart burn indigestion, upset stomach, diarrhea. Pepto-Bismol. Pink is more than you think. Word. I'm, I'm proud to have with us Mr. Gatewood Galbraith, author of The Last Free Man in America Meets the Synthetic Subversion. Welcome, Gatewood. Good evening, Dean. Let me tell you what a pleasure it is to be here. This is probably the top quality show of its type that I've ever been associated with. I appreciate that. Well, and I, I thank you for being here. We we had you on as a guest some months back to talk about your book. We had met each other up in New York at the uh, uh, Marijuana Policy Project uh, That's right. get-together. That's right. And um, the way I understand it, you started out as a a hippie and you wound up uh, encountering this uh, this abomination of government well, and decided to do something about it well what happened i was 24 years old the milkman in 1971 when i decided i wasn't going to take any more of it and i was going to die at an early age you end up in prison so i decided i was going to go to college and become an attorney and become governor of kentucky and change marijuana laws and i went to college and i became an attorney and i've run for governor of kentucky three times and most notably in 1999 as a reform party candidate and got 15.3 percent of the vote as a reform party candidate for governor general election next to Ross Perot and Jesse Ventura. That was the best any candidate ever did in the reform party. And then I ran for attorney general in 03, and I'm going to be a candidate in the Democratic primary for governor in Kentucky in 07, and I have a terrific shot at it this time. And, uh, you know, I'm just sick and tired of, uh, of uh, Kentucky being poor and, uh, you know, the United States getting poor all the time because of the, the extraordinary influence of uh, out-of-country dollars coming in here and setting policy uh, in, in the United States. And um, I, it, I think today the big battles between the natural cycle and the synthetic cycle, and the synthetic pipe cycle, or the the non-breathing, non-living corporate entities who last forever and who are represented by the petrochemical, pharmaceutical, military, industrial, transnational, corporate, fascist, elite SOBs, uh, as against the uh, the people and the environment and the natural cycle, and and the human beings for whom the process of government of the United States was such a revolutionary uh, uh, benefit.
I, I'm sorry. Are you sorry you asked the question now? <laughs> no, sir. I, I, that's well done. I, I have uh, a, a few of my own that I like to bring forward, but that 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 sums it up quite well. Uh, once again, we're speaking with Mr. Gatewood Galbraith, the author of The Last Free Man in America Meets the Synthetic Subversion. He is going to be with us along with the producer, uh, uh, Andrew Hudson, tomorrow. Uh, well, no, it's going to be Michael Henning. No, oh, now, the director. This movie, uh, this movie is, uh, uh, the, uh, has me, Willie Nelson, Woody Harrelson, and Julia Butterfly Hill, and Merle Haggard, and we're talking about just how important hemp and cannabis is, not as only as an issue, but as a method of saving the environment on this planet. Uh, this is all the story about hemp as a as a, 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 a industrial textile fuel, and hemp as a medicinal crop, cannabis, and of course, uh, hemp and marijuana are both cannabis in the same way that Danny DeVito and Dennis Rodman are both adult males. You know, they don't look a lot alike, but they are the same thing, and they have just different uses. Okay, uh, thank you very much. Uh, the movie Hempsters.
Okay, that was a brand new release from Abyss Dancer Limited, my music production company. It was performed by Guy Schwartz and the New Jack Hippies featuring Kid Red singing. Also features Robert Taus on uh, bass, Randy Wall playing uh, organ and uh, piano. Uh, it also serves as an editorial to make a point. What's the worst that could happen if we ended Prohibition? Well, some people would wind up sitting around doing drugs. Uh, people do drugs in prison. What would we prefer? To spend $30,000 a year to put a man in a box and then he does drugs? Or would we prefer that uh, they do it at home? Uh, it's really up to you to make a difference. Please visit our website, drugtruth.net. There you can hear hundreds of these programs featuring congressmen, scientists, doctors, lawyers, and many others. Or visit our website, endprohibition.org. There you can join up with numerous drug reform organizations. And as always, I remind you that because of drug prohibition, you don't know what's in that bag. Please be careful. To the Drug Truth Network listeners around the world, on behalf of engineer Philip Guthy, this is Dean Becker for Cultural Baggage and the Unvarnished Truth. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Jap dancing on the edge of the